Well, let's turn in our Bibles now as we go to the Word of God. Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. We have been going through the book of Romans and it's been a great study for me. I hope it's been encouraging for you. We come to a section now in Romans 12 in which there is a pivotal point in the book. A pivotal point, really, in how Paul begins to go into chapter upon chapter, a practical exhortation of what we do based on what we know, of who we are, what God has done, and what we are to do now. In chapter 12, we come to the first, the first imperative, or the first command. The first command in all of the book up until now, the command is this, in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brethren... By the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's bow in a word of prayer together and ask God to bless our time in His Word. Our Father, once again, we come before Your Word. As You have reminded us, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of our God will stand forever. And we pray, Father, that Your Word would take root in our heart. We might be people who understand, who heed who respond and obey. For your word is precious and we pray, God, that you would open our eyes that we might see great and mighty things from thy law. In Jesus' precious name, amen. I was very encouraged. I don't know if you were. I was very encouraged when I read the newsletter that I've been sharing with you about that's back on the back literature table. I was very encouraged by all of the entries, the things that people wrote. Some were short and and to the point. Others were long stories about a memory in the past. They were very encouraging to me, but one stood out in particular. One stood out and it reads this, quote, I've had many, many memorable times at LHBC. Game night with the young people, men's fellowship golf, weddings, missions trips to Mexico and La Push. But the one that sticks out in my mind the most was seeing Ron Chan off at the airport as he was leaving for China as a long-term missionary. I could see how much Ron was giving up, selling all he had, quitting a good job, leaving family and friends behind. Ron gave up everything to share the gospel to a faraway country. Such courage and obedience. I will never forget his dedication to our Lord. Unquote. Many of us won't forget him. And I completely agree with him. I completely agree with that sentiment. You don't see that kind of dedication in the Christian community very often. Perhaps a little bit more often here in this ministry. We've been blessed with that. But how does a person come to that point in their life where they completely surrender everything to God, even their life. That kind of commitment, that kind of surrender in life comes when we realize how much God has done for us, who we are. When we realize the great gift of salvation, 
All that God has sacrificed on our behalf so that we might come to know Him. If we're going to have a surrendered life to God and live as a living sacrifice, as Paul tells us here, we need to know that what we're surrendering our life for is well worth the, the price that we're giving. It must be well worth it. It's like that parable of the pearl of great price in Matthew chapter 13 when Jesus gives this parable and He says this man found this pearl in this field. And it's not like he found some great gem in the middle of the field that was sticking out. A pearl is small. He found this pearl in this field and he knew the value. And so he went and sold all that he had so that he could come buy the field so he could gain that pearl. If people see this little pearl in the field and they don't know how much it's worth and they say to themselves, oh, it's just a little rock. Seems like a nice, pretty little smooth white stone. Yes. They might just bypass it. But the man knew that that pearl was worth everything that he owned. He sold it, bought that field so that he could have that pearl. And if we realize the price of what we're giving our life for, then so much so we'll be willing to give up and sacrifice for that thing. Many of you think things are valuable until so you sacrifice for those things. If you, if you value your children, you're going to do and go out of your way to do what it takes to raise those kids. If you think that sports are important, you'll put other things secondary to your sports. If you think that your grades or your studies are important to you, you know what? You're going to sacrifice a lot so that you can get good grades. If you think that a particular stock is, is going to go up, you think it's valuable. You're going to invest a lot of money in that. If you think that your, your spouse is important, you'll invest in your marriage. If you know the value of something, you will give towards what it takes to gain what you might have. And that's what we come to when we come to chapter 12 of the book of Romans. Paul goes on in the first 11 chapters and he outlines for us who we were, that we were sinners. And yet God, because of His love for us, had a plan to justify us, to make us right with Him, to cause us to grow, to give us His Spirit, and His great love was lavished upon us and nothing can separate us from the love of God. And it's all God's work, he says in chapter 9, because the sovereignty of God tells us what? That He chooses to redeem some. We are to respond in chapter 10. And Israel has a future in how He illustrates this whole process, not only with us, but with the nation of Israel. And if we realize the preciousness of the salvation which we've been given, he says here, we would be very more than willing to be a living sacrifice. For God has loved us greatly. And that's what he tells us in all of this place, in all of the text that we have here. He outlines for us very plainly those things. And he does this often in various books of the Bible. Not only in Romans, which has 11 chapters of doctrine, and then it goes on to 12 through 16 of practical, how we are to live. He does it in the book of Ephesians. How we are chosen, how we are redeemed, how we are saved, who we were. And now in chapter 4, halfway through the book of the book of Ephesians, he says, Live in a, in a manner worthy of the calling which you have received. If you don't know the calling, you can't live well in the way God wants you to. Same in Colossians, the first two chapters of who we were and the last two chapters of how we're to live. Same in Philippians, the first two and the last two. The same in Galatians, etc., etc. It's important for us to know who we were 
what God has done so we can live in the right way. Some people like to major on the practical side of things, and that's not a bad thing. They want to learn what it is to pray and what it is to give or how to worship or how to reach out. But if our focus is simply on all of the practical things, you know what? Someday you're going to wonder, why in the world am I doing this? And you'll feel burnt out. The motivation won't last. You'll do it simply because somebody has told you to do it. But if you realize, you know what? I do it because of all that God has done for me and because I love God. Then my motivation will be for a lifetime. And so he begins here with a motivation in chapters 1 through 11 and in chapter 12, verse 1. He tells us two things. Because of all that God has done in your life and in my life that we cannot see, we are called to, number one, be a living sacrifice, and number two, to be transformed in our mind. To be transformed in our mind. We are called to be a living sacrifice, first of all, where it says in verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Do you know all the Old Testament sacrifices, even in Bible times? They were all dead. They were all dead sacrifices. And here Paul is calling us to be a living sacrifice. You know, in the Old Testament, they would take the animal there and put it on the altar and they would, you know, cut the karate artery so that it would be a very humane type of sacrifice. God calls us to be a, a living sacrifice with the result being that we can prove that the will of God is, is perfect and that it is good, that we can show and validate it, that we can test it for the sense of, of validation, that it might be shown to be that which is the will of God, to learn the will of God as we do it as well. But when we see and we look and see, he says, by the mercies of God, what does that mean? In light of all that we know of what God has done, of sending His Son to be beaten, to be scourged, to be mocked, to die for the sins of the entire world. We see, you know what? What I give of myself can never repay what God has done for us. That pleases God. That is acceptable. That is well worth it, isn't it? Those of you who are parents, for instance... Perhaps those of you who are newer parents even, especially, probably reflected on the challenge that it is when you have a, a baby that has come into your family. Suddenly, you're sacrificing things that you haven't had to before. You lose a lot of sleep, the time, the effort, the crying, the, 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 the inconveniences that you used to not have a, and are now, are now committed to raising that child. And I'm sure it brings you great joy when your kids grow older that, 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 to know that, well, if they were to appreciate you for those things, if they were to love you or they were to grow up to be obedient and thoughtful kids, to be respectful of you and your spouse, that they were to grow up to live upright lives. And it would bring you great joy if they came and they had a heart and a passion for God, that they really had a heart and a love for the glory of God to do what is right. The same would be the same with, with God as our Father, who would look upon us as His children for all that God has done in, quote-unquote, raising us in sanctification, causing us to grow. Would not God be pleased if we were to give Him thanks, if we were to give Him praise and glory and to do what is right, 
to respect and to worship Him, to make wise choices and above all, to love Him with all of our heart. It's God's desire that we surrender to Him without reservation, without reluctance, without conditions, with a full desire to say to God, God, whatever you would want me to do, I am willing to do, even if it means to suffer for you. When I was in college, there was a song that touched my life right before I began to think about what it meant to give my life to the Lord and surrendering every part. I had been a Christian for a long time, but to really truly come to that point to say, God, what is it that you want me to do? There was a song that touched my life. It was entitled, For the Sake of the Call. And I've shared this with you before. But the words stand true of the heart that God desires of us. For it reads... We, and it's speaking of perhaps the apostles as well, we will abandon it all for the sake of the call. No other reason at all but the sake of the call. Wholly devoted to live and to die for the sake of the call. Nobody stood and applauded them, so they knew from the start this road would not lead to fame. All they really knew for sure was Jesus had called them. He said, come, follow me. And they came. With reckless abandon, they came. Empty nets lying there at the water's edge told a story that few could believe and none could explain. How some crazy fishermen agreed to go where Jesus went with no thought to what they would gain. For Jesus had called them by name and they answered, we will abandon it all for the sake of the call. Drawn like the rivers are drawn to the sea. There's no turning back, for the water cannot help but flow. Once we hear the Savior's call, we'll follow wherever He leads. Because of His love, He has shown, and because He has called us to go. We will abandon it all for the sake of the call. Not for the sake of a creed or a cause, not for a dream or a promise, simply because it is Jesus who called, and if we obey, if we believe, we'll obey. We will abandon it all for the sake of the call. No other reason at all for the sake of the call. God has called us. God has called us to give a life that is wholly devoted as a living sacrifice. When Jesus said in Matthew 16, 24, He said to the people, it was a general call of salvation. He said, if anyone would come after Me, he must deny himself. He must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow Me. And they knew what that meant. The people listening knew what he meant. If anybody would want to be my disciple, be a follower of Jesus, they must be willing to die just as I shall. They knew Jesus was speaking of death. That's contrary to our self-indulgent, our self-centered, our selfish life where we, we happen to think that the, that, the, that the axis of the earth passes through our backyard. We want what we want. We want our desire. We want to be happy. It doesn't matter. Many times when we're unhappy, we'll do what makes us, what pleases us. We begin to see ourselves and our focus is on, on us versus our focus on God and saying, God, what is it that pleases you? What is it that pleases you? I am willing to do by the grace of God, by the mercies of God, it says here, because of the love of God. 
Because of the greatness of the payment that God has given. There's no place for this half-hearted commitment to God. No place for this half-in, half-out type of Christianity. This halfway committed type of life which says, Well, I'll do it if it's convenient or I'll obey or I'll follow if it matches my criteria. But to say to God, God, my future, my family, my desires, my home, even my dreams, God, I want you to be my God and I want to follow you. As for me and my house, we will follow the Lord. Most Christians aren't like that. They say, God, I'll do it under certain circumstances, under certain conditions or up to a point. I remember in the Philippines, when I was there, I, I was ministering at a church and, and, and the pastor there, I asked if I could use the, the restroom and he showed me, he went downstairs and he showed me that he actually lived down in a, a probably about a quarter of the basement. And it was very dark there and it was kind of smelly and everything was cramped in there and he had his kids, he had at least two kids and it, was, it, it wasn't a very sightly place. Then he showed me that the, 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 it was dark and damp and he showed me the restroom and it was rather repulsive. You know, I mean, it was not only small and smelly, but there were just dozens of scores of flies just sitting all over the wall. And I thought to myself, Lord, would I be able and willing to minister in a place like this, to live here, to raise a family here, whatever it might be? And the question that I challenge myself with is the same that we challenge ourselves with. Am I willing to do what God would call me to do no matter what the circumstances might be? Why? Because even the sacrifice that I give to God is nothing in comparison to what God has done for me. I mean, some people look at missionaries and they say, well, they have sacrificed a great deal. But, you know, when we look at the sacrifice, David Livingstone, the very famous missionary to Africa, perhaps wrote it best. He said, quote, people talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Can that be called sacrifice, which is simply paid back as a small part of the great debt? Owing to our God, which we can never repay? Is that a sacrifice which brings its own reward of healthful activity, the consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and bright hope of a glorious destiny hereafter? Away with such a word, such a view, such a thought. It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say, rather, it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering or danger now and then, with a foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life, may make us pause and cause to the spirit to waver and sink, but let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall hereafter be revealed in and for us. I never made a sacrifice Of this we ought not talk when we remember the great sacrifice which He made who left His Father's throne on high to give Himself for us, unquote. Compared to that which God has done for us, the things that we do and give are no sacrifice. Rather, we gain something which is better when we give to God. 
And we give to God when we serve, we give of our time and resources of our life. We give back to God what he rightly deserves. And we give away our own selfishness. Notice that this too, when he says, present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, it's not an option. It's not a suggestion. Paul is not saying, would you like to give as a living sacrifice to God? He's not saying that. It's a command. It's a command to give to God. God says here, give of your life. Surrender your will. And the question lies before us is what? Will I live to please myself, to live for myself, to seek my own happiness, to seek what pleases me? Or will I live to please God, to please God and to do what the will of God is, a life of full and unconditional surrender that I will do and obey God no matter what he calls me to do? I want to be a seeker of the will of God. Secondly, because of God's mercies, Paul says in verse 2, be transformed by the renewing of our mind, not by this world. He says, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Again, it's not conforming to this world with a renewed mind and knowing the results, I should say, is knowing or validating or verifying the will of God as acceptable and perfect. And the word conform there has to do with the idea of masquerading. Don't masquerade something that is on the outside, that is not true in the inside. The world's ways, the world's, the world's conformity, the world's values, the world's patterns. One author writes it very well. He says, quote, It is not uncommon... For unbelievers to mask themselves as Christians. Unfortunately, it is also not uncommon for Christians to wear the world's masks. They want to enjoy the world's entertainment, the world's fashions, the world's vocabulary, the world's music, and many of the world's attitudes, even when those things clearly do not conform to the standards of God's Word. And that sort of living is wholly unacceptable to God, unquote. One of the things that we don't talk about perhaps as much as we ought to is this idea of worldliness. Worldliness. Worldliness is loving the world and in so doing, denying God. It's not wrong to enjoy the things that God has created or the things of this world. But there are many passages in the scriptures that talk about what it is to be a worldly person and to avoid that. In 1 Timothy 4.7 and 6.20, Paul tells Timothy, don't have anything to do with worldly favors or worldly and empty chatter. 1 and Timothy 2.16, avoid ungodly or worldly empty chatter again. And so Titus 2.11, he says, deny ungodliness and worldly desires. And in Jude 1.19, he talks about false teachers who cause division. They are worldly-minded. Worldliness is an indicative problem of the heart because it's dominated by the values of the world, the culture of our day, the entertainment and the materialism of things that the world has to offer. You want to examine your own life and ask yourself, am I a worldly person? Ask yourself, what is it that I think and talk about most of the time? What are the things that dominate my heart? What are the things that dominate my life and my speech? Is it God? 
Turn your Bibles to 1 John, which speaks very clearly about worldliness. And 1 John chapter 2, it gives a warning. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. A passage that I have often reminded myself of that speaks to me very clearly as well. 1 John 2.15, as John writes here, and he speaks of the world and gives a warning here. He says, do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Lives forever. The question that begged to be answered is, are you more in love with the world or with God? Are you more in love with the world or with God? If others were to look at your life from the outside, what would they say about you? Would they say that, you know, you're a worldly person? Would they say you're a lover of God? doesn't matter how much or how little we have. A person who is poor can be worldly. A person who is wealthy can be worldly. A person who is poor can be godly. A person who is rich can be godly. But... What does our life display in the desires of our heart, in our speech, the things that we talk about? What would they say? Do you love God or do you love the world? But you say, I know a lot of people at work. I know a lot of people in my school or my parenting group that are seemingly very worldly and it seems to be okay. It seems to be okay in our, our culture. But what happens to a person who is worldly? What happens to a person who is worldly? 2 Timothy 4, 9 and 10 tells us about someone who is worldly. Paul writes in 2 Timothy and he says to Timothy, Make every effort to come to me soon. And he says what about Demas? For Demas, this individual who was with him, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Here was an individual who was a partner, who was serving God by serving alongside of Paul. But the enticement of the world came and drew him away. If you're worldly, I'll tell you what will happen. When, the things, when life gets tough, when the commitment is called upon you to follow Christ, you'll capitulate because the things in the world are more attractive for you. You'll bail out. Because Satan knows that most people have a price on their forehead. He can buy you out and whatever that price is, Satan will be willing to pay that price so that you will not fall, follow Christ and live in obedience. He'll buy you out. He'll give you that bribe. What is it that you want? What is it that you want that will, that will suck your soul from God? What is it that you want? What is it? Is it, is it comfort? Is it entertainment? Is it friendship? Is it love? Is it having a spouse? Is it having kids? Such that you're willing to compromise and say, no, I won't follow God anymore. That it's too high of a price. I want the world, what the world has to offer me. And I've shared with you many times before and shared with our, our, our youth that by the time they go off into college campus crusade for Christ, that 70% of them fall away from the Christian faith. Why? One of the big reasons, I believe, is because their eyes are drawn to the world. 
The world tells them, you know what, you get a good education in college and you know what, you're going to make all this money and then you can have the American dream, you can gain more in our, in our, in our consumeristic society, you can be a successful individual and the allure of, of education, the allure of money, the allure of fame or whatever it might be, the accolades that the world has for you will draw you away. Verse 2 gives us a solution to that though. It says, be transformed. By the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is. You want to change and combat worldliness? You want to change and combat what the world is impressing upon us? And we all, we all suffer and are affected in some way. The world's values, the world's way of thinking affects all, not just youth, but adults as well. You want to change all of that? Renew your mind. You want to change your life? Renew your mind. Your mind, your thought life, the way that you think, the way that you think about things. Biblical change comes from conforming the mind to godly thoughts. If my thoughts are about my financial security, then you know what? I'm going to respond in an ungodly way. I'm going to worry. If I constantly think about what other people think of me and, and, and how, how they view me, then you know what? I'm going to be a, a self-conscious individual who feels very insecure because my value is not in God, what God thinks of me. It's going to be in value of what others think of me. If I'm thinking about drowning all the time, I'm going to be very worried about going towards the water and I may respond in, in fear and go so far. Some people have a great phobia. If I'm thinking about worldly things, you know what? I won't be, simply won't be thinking about godly things. So you want to help somebody who's struggling with their, their fear, their insecurity, their, their worldly thoughts? You know what? You transform their mind. Help them to think godly thoughts. What would God think about this? What would please God? And that's how change occurs. That's what counseling, newthetic counseling is all about. Placing within the mind the thoughts of God so that we can live a life that is pleasing to Him. The life that is stable is the life that has its mind fixed on the things of God. And that's how we transform our life through the Word of God as God uses it through His Spirit. And He can bring us out of all sorts of situations, even serious ones. When I was flying back from India, or when I was flying on my way home to the airport, I, uh, the students wanted me to stay with this one individual. Wanted me to stay with this one individual who was in another city. He was going to drive down a few hours to see me because he wanted to talk. They were glad that I was going to Bombay because on the way I could stay with him overnight. They told me that he had struggled with depression for a long time. He had struggled with depression for a long time and he had needed someone to talk to. And now we realize that depression is this big, big... monster of a problem that affects most people and sometimes it can be caused by physiological issues, you know, thyroid issues. Sometimes it can be caused by medication, over-medicating and various things like that. But many times it can be a spiritual issue as well. A spiritual issue as well. One person I, in a, in a, in a seminar, this, this one missionary had shared with me that he had helped someone with depression over the years that had struggled with it for years and years and it turned out that he had discovered and make a long story short that this man had committed a murder that was unsolved and his depression came because of his guilt well this individual that I that I met with we stayed up and we talked for hours and it was probably about after 3, 3.30 in the morning 
We had talked and he had shared with me about his life, about how, how his parents had died, and how he tried to go and get help and what the doctor prescribed for him were these antidepressants that he had that brought out the medicine and showed to me what he was taking and how much and all of that sort of a thing. This young man had struggled for years. To make a long story short, when it came down to it, he, he, of course, he had been going to church, had some Christian friends and things like that. But after talking for a long time, I realized, and he admitted, that he simply had never accepted or been able to accept the fact that Jesus was God. That Jesus was God. And in so believing that, one simply can't be a Christian. One can't be a Christian if you don't believe that Jesus is God. So we went through the scriptures showing how Jesus is God, how He had the attributes of God, and how He was the Savior. And He said, yes, how I believe. And we prayed, and that night He received Christ as a Savior, and from His testimony He would share in the next morning how He woke up, and how He would have joy, and how He no longer needed to be on drugs. Praise God. Now God had given him a new life and a new outlook on life and how his perspective has changed because of the renewal of his mind through the truth of the Word of God. And that is what God desires to do for us as well. He wants us to change in our life. And He offers that same gift to all of us and that is what Easter is all about. That gift of the forgiveness of all of our sins. No matter what we've done in the past, God gives us a brand new start a clean conscience, a fresh start in life, the free gift of eternal life in heaven. If we simply understand, we understand that we have sinned against God. We have done things wrong. We have offended a holy God. That God has a solution, that God has sent His Son, Christ Jesus, to die on the cross for our sins, to pay that price and He died on the cross and was raised on the third day so that you might be saved. And if we call upon God to forgive us and turn to Him in repentance of sin, then God can grant to you that freedom from guilt as well. That eternal life, that renewal of the heart as our hearts and our minds are transformed. He offers that to you. And if you've never accepted Christ as your personal Savior, I encourage you to do so, to call upon God and tell God what you have done and to express to God how you believe that His Son has died on the cross, paid the penalty for your sin, and ask Him to save you from your sins. God can grant to you that gift as well. But if you're already a Christian, what characterizes you? What characterizes you as we've looked into this passage? Is it a passage that says, you know what, I'm living for myself when we look at our own lives? I'll follow God, but I have a price. You know what? God desires us to have a life that is surrendered to Him. Is that our life? Because if we have a price, you know what, who's going to pay for it first is Satan. He's going to buy you out. God says, be a living sacrifice that is holy, acceptable to God, because that's an act of worship. That is an act of worship. And what characterizes me? Is that a love for God? Or am I characterized by worldliness? Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Don't love the things of this world, 
Don't love this world because if we do, you know what? The love of God doesn't reside in us. What characterizes you? Worldliness, a life of worldliness, a life of living for ourselves, or is it a life of godliness, of sacrifice? And one that desires to live to please God. May it be this Easter that we live for God. That this is a day of decision for us. A day when we can say, you know what, I live for God. I have a life that has surrendered to God. My heart is that I desire to please God with all of my time and the things that I have that I want to do what God wants me to do. So, God, grant me the grace. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, how great is your love as we have sung. We pray, O God, that our heart might beat after yours. Lord, you know that many times we struggle with our commitment to you, with a life that knows we ought to surrender, that we ought to commit everything we have, our future, our desires, our dreams to you. But Father, we pray by your grace, may we commit ourselves to be a living sacrifice, holy and blameless, as an act of worship today. Whatever reason, Father, we have for not doing so, we pray, O God, that you would take away that reason. Help us to trust you with our future. Help us to trust you with our life. May we do what is pleasing to you. May we not love the things of this world and be worldly. May our speech, our thoughts, our hearts love you above all else. For your Son came to die and to redeem us from sin that we might live as children who are pleasing to you as a living sacrifice. In your Son's precious name, amen.